Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 294 is recorded live August 11th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we have some unseasonably nice weather. Actually, I say it's unseasonably. It's actually what we would expect. Joining me this week, we have Kevin. How are you doing today, Kevin? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Darren. Uh, and how are you this evening? I'm doing fine. And also, we have a special guest joining us this week. We have Billy C. from Scuba Nation. How are you doing today, Billy? Excellent, guys. Excellent. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you on the program. It's an honor to have you join us. Uh, now, is it is it a little bit of a change for you? You're normally in front of a camera, and now you, you're, you're hidden behind a microphone. Yeah. At, well, you know what? Actually, in the Keys, we do a little bit of a radio show, too. So we have faces for radio or podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of our lines. that We've got the, uh, the, the face for radio. Absolutely. So why don't you give us a little bit of background? Uh, can you tell us what Scuba Nation is and what got you started in that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're a TV show dedicated to the sport of recreational scuba diving. We're currently in our fifth season on Fox Sports Sun. That's a Fox regional market down here in Florida. Uh, it has a national reach with people with direct TV and dish that have certain sports packages. And what we like to do is keep it fun, keep it positive, keep it light, attract people to the sport. Uh, you know, you know, we're really, there's not too many shows dedicated to scuba diving. There's a ton of fishing shows, but there really isn't a, a weekly show that's just dedicated to our sport that we love. And, uh, we try to, you know, make it accessible to people. We try to make it entertaining, uh, kind of irreverent, you know, educate by accident, but, uh, all about getting wet, blowing bubbles and having the time of your life. Excellent. So love it. gotta love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, this is our passion, you know, and it's just so it's what. So what you got you into scuba diving originally? What was the initial trigger? Uh, it was, uh, you know, I was Boston born and raised, and you know, I always kind of go back to a whale watch that I went on when I was about six, seven years old with my father off of Gloucester, Massachusetts, and. I saw a humpback whale breach, uh, you know, and for a six, seven-year-old kid, that was highly impressionable on me. Uh, it was just a massive animal, hits the water, humongous wave, and I'm just like, holy crap, what the hell was that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, ever since then, you know, I started watching Jacques Cousteau, and from that point on, I was like, when I, you know, back then, I believe it was 18, the minute I could get certified, I did. Six-year-old kid. Yeah. And then, and then I went to Florida State. I studied marine biology. Um, met a girl at school. Moved to Miami. Knew I had to do a job I hated for a little while. Uh, did that, and when the opportunity came about to go after my passion, you know, I went for it. And uh, you know, with support from friends and family, we haven't really looked back since. And um, took a leap of faith, and it's been working out for us. Well, that's great. Uh, now you said five seasons. 
what's the season like? Is that uh, 52 weeks a year? Uh, It's uh, it's 26 weeks. It Uh starts uh, beginning of April to the end of September. Um, And what we try to do, we try to do about 13 to 14 original episodes. And then towards the end of the season, we'll repeat some of them from the beginning. Um, We like to do a a wrap-up show. We like to do a kickoff show in the beginning of the season. Last year, we actually produced our own little, uh, our own little Scuba Nation Shark Frenzy Week. You know, kind of did sharks in a positive light, yeah. As opposed to uh, the drama that some <laughs> other networks might do. So, you know, it, 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 the fun thing about the Fox Sports Network is we own the content, we own the airtime, we own everything. So we're able to create in a way that we want to and um, tell the stories that we want to. And that's, that's always been just, uh, you know, just getting those cool, interesting things from, you know, whether it's wreck diving or, or treasure hunting or talking about the Florida Keys or, you know, jumping off from Miami where Miami based to go into the Caribbean. Uh, this year we did a show in Grenada. We've been to Saba. We're going to Mexico in a couple of days. And so it's just, it's, we're in a nice spot to tell a lot of different types of stories with regard to scuba diving. You know, Florida is an awesome place to go yeah. diving. I like to get down there as often as I can. Yeah, hey, but you know what? I grew up cold weather diving up in Boston. I want to come and see you guys in the Great Lakes. That's for sure. We'll do an episode with you guys. Certainly, come on up. We've got plenty of wrecks to to get you out on, depending on what what time of the year is. But the only time where wreck diving really slows down is when we have ice on the lake, and then then we're just doing ice dives in in the inland lakes. Right. That has to be pretty intense too, huh? Oh, that's a blast. Especially some of these uh, inland lakes, you know, this time of year they're all algaed up and you you got two inches visibility, but you uh, come back in the middle of the winter and you can see 30, 40 feet. It's, it's unbelievable. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And, and we have lakes around here that you can dive in the winter that even have shipwrecks in them. You know, there are, and it surprises you, but there are a number of lakes here that have wrecks approaching feet in them. And uh, right. they... A very different ice dive when you see things like that down there. Yeah, that's that's got to be pretty intense. I got to admit, that would be wild to do with you guys. <laughs> now, see, I haven't. That's that's one I got to do, Kevin. Is I've not been able to get on a shipwreck. I've gotten on objects, and you know, some of these lakes have little tiny boats, but I I want to get in a full size shipwreck under the ice. Okay. Well, that's something to talk about for next winter. You know, yeah, we can put it on the calendar. I I can make a few recommendations to you there. So. Uh, of course, we got to have some good ice. Last year, the ice was uh, marginal at best. We did get a couple ice dives in, but uh, <laughs> they were experiences all in themselves just because, uh, you know, we're working with, uh, I think we had four inches of ice, and that's, you know, oh. when you're cutting holes in it, getting right. that iffy. No, that, that, that's for the smaller guys than me. Four inches of ice is not a, is not a good situation. <laughs> Well, you've got a dry suit on, you know, you go through, we're just going to haul you out, you know, I mean. Uh, That's what the line's for. Exactly. Yeah. So, Billy, down there, I understand that in Florida you've got quite a few lovely wrecks. What are some that you've had a chance to go on recently? Oh, yeah, it's it really is. An, uh, the artificial reef program throughout the Keys and South Florida especially, is it's tremendous opportunities um, recently, we were just in Key West. We were diving the mighty Vandenberg. Uh, that's been down for about eight years. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's like diving a city block. It's over 500 feet long, has radar dishes, just a tremendous wreck. Obviously, we got the Spiegel Grove up in Key Largo. 
But recently, uh, as it happened on July 23rd of last month, um, the city of Pompano Beach sunk. Uh, it used to be an old like waste tanker from New York City. <laughs> when I mean waste, I think I, uh, human yeah. waste. But anyway, <laughs> but they you know been looking for a wreck to sink for quite a while, and they came across um, this wreck up in New York City, and they got it for a real good price. They towed it down to the Miami River where they cleaned it up, getting it ready for sinking. And one of the partners involved was uh, a casino, uh, Owl Casino Racing in Pompano Park. And they put up a big, you know, big donation to help get this thing ready. But their idea was to, you know, commission a local artist and kind of come up with the theme for the boat. So, you know, this local artist wanted to do something fun, interactive, whimsical. And, you know, he decided to make the top deck of this old tanker into like a casino floor. (laughs) So they, he created a craps table. He made these big dice. He had a poker table. And then he takes it a step further, and, and the craps dealer is an octopus. So you can imagine a craps dealer with, you know, octopus arms. You know, I wouldn't want to play against that guy. He, he's <laughs> going to win all the time. <laughs> and then the poker table has, you know, sharks, you know, these awesome, you know, artwork that he made of, of sharks. And, you know, they got big grins on their face. One of them has a gold tooth. They're all holding hands and, you know, <laughs> One of them has a look on his face, obviously has a really good hand. <laughs> and it's just it's just really cool. I think a lot of scuba divers are going to flock to the area. You know, it's the ultimate selfie to sit at this poker table or the craps table and get a picture with the octopus oh, or, the, or the card shark. So it's uh, the latest and the greatest. And um, it's a lot of buzz right now in the local diving community. And uh, we did an episode on it. And uh, it's actually airing this weekend on, on the show. And then you guys can watch it. Once it's done with TV, we'll put it on our website. And you guys can watch all the past episodes, including The Lady Luck. That's the name of the boat, The Lady Luck. Excellent. Well, that's a brilliant idea. I love the idea of the, the gambling casino on the deck. Yeah. makes yeah. it a little, little bit more interesting than just a, a flat boat. And like you said, that photo op, you're going to get quite a few people down there. And it was cool. It was cool to see, like, city officials, the government, to get behind something that related to scuba diving. I mean, this the, the people that were, you know, driving this look at it as an economic engine, you know, and, and what's going to power that engine are scuba divers coming to th- their city to, you know, dive the wreck. But obviously, after they're diving, divers love to eat and drink, obviously, right. and, uh, you know, put their beds and heads. And so it was kind of cool to see, like, you know, business leaders in the community, you know, get behind a project that involves scuba divers. To me, that was the coolest part. I was like, wow, all right, these guys, you know, they have faith in the scuba diving industry. They they believe in us to, you know, do something cool and we'll come and we'll we'll dive it. So that, I, 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 I like that positive aspect of it, that these community leaders got behind something that was driven by scuba divers. Uh, and that's something that we've been trying to get going up here and it just hasn't quite taken traction. Right. Uh, we, we've got in Michigan, we have underwater reserves, uh, preserves, I said reserves, preserves around the state. And each preserve is allowed to sink one shipwreck. Right. But so far in the 10 plus years that they've had the preserve system in place, nobody has actually come up with a shipwreck to sink. We've had some ships that have just mysteriously sunk, but right, right. N- nothing that's been planned. <laughs> commissioned. Commissioned yeah. to be sunk. <clears throat> 
Hey, Dan, I might interject. I think they did put one in the uh, the algae preserve, sunk one a few years ago. I think that was that predated the preserve system, but I'll have to take a look. Well, hey, guys, this is, this is the prime example. This is a good model that these guys did, and it's, I think it can be replicated for sure. And oh. then, you know what, it, it, it's, the, it's the, in the marketing of it too, you know, that right. whole aspect of it in getting with the tourism councils or, you know, the tourism bureaus. You know, I know Michigan is a great outdoors, you know, state, and they, people are very outdoorsy, and, you know, they yep. want to attract people to the state. There's, there's dollars out there to look at to say, hey, you know, let's, let's do something for the diving. Let's attract scuba divers to Michigan. Yep. So I, I think there's definitely a, a model there that can be replicated. Yeah, we, we've certainly liked to do that. We've yeah. we've had that interest, and hopefully we can get something to take place. But it's it's nice to see states like Maryland and Florida and Alabama who have all gotten on the artificial reef program and are regularly putting them down. Uh, I understand the the U.S. government had put a stop to uh, them supplying military vessels, but it looks like Florida's done a good job of finding alternate sources for vessels yep. to turn into reefs. Yep, yep. The, there's... Uh, you know what? West Palm just sunk one, and it was um, the DEA. You know, it was a yes. it was a tugboat in the Miami River that had twenty million dollars <laughs> worth of cocaine on it, and uh, <laughs> DEA the DEA busted it, and then they donated it to Discover the Palm Beaches, which is the tourism bureau for the now, Palm. Beaches. I'm assuming the cocaine didn't go down with the vessel when they put it on the reef. Yeah, I mean, they said there was a certain amount of, you know, cocaine that they found on the boat. I don't know how much cocaine was actually taken into custody, but well, <laughs> that's <laughs> but, uh, but they donated that shit, so it, it was free. I mean, they had to clean it up. I think the cost for the taxpayers, well, the tourism dollars that – the tourism dollars are generated by the bed tax, which is like all the taxes from the hotels. Yes. Um, but they put it back into, you know, promoting the area. So I think it was only about you know a hundred grand to clean it up. They sunk it. It's upright. It's a beautiful hundred and thirty seven foot tugboat, and uh, yeah, and there's already Goliath Grouper congregating on it, and divers are flocking to it. And you know, I think it's another good example. And that was just sunk, you know, three weeks before the Lady Luck. So it's been kind of active with yeah. the, the the artificial reef programs in South Florida. Wait, Billy, I was kind of wondering, you know, you mentioned quite a few wrecks. I've got my, my curiosity here. But personally, which, which of these is your favorite? Oh, man. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's, um, I've been doing the Vandenberg a lot lately for some, you know, they've been, there's been some projects with, you know, there was a guy, um, it was called the, under, the, the Sinking World, and uh, they put artwork on the Vandenberg and created it almost like an art gallery, and they let the, the work marinade on the wreck for uh you know three months so the 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 artwork was evolving as you know coral and algae were growing onto these art pieces so diving the vandenberg it's almost like your very own jungle gym and it sits close to the gulf stream down off of key west and it's just it's it's so much fun and there's tons of life because it's been down for eight years so it's just it's amazing now um but there's smaller wrecks that have more history, like the city of Washington or the Copenhagen. The Copenhagen was coming from like London down through Cuba, and it was uh, a steamer, and um, it hit a reef. The guy, the captain, was drunk or something, and <laughs> and 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 then you know it was back in the 
1915, somewhere at that time. So it's a, you know, it's on the, the, the register, Florida's register of um, historical shipwrecks. Uh, so, you know, you get, you know, some of these that are intentionally sunk, but then you get some of these really cool stories of the older wrecks that have a lot of history to it. So to me, it's the variety. You know, the big wrecks like the Vandenberg, the Spiegel Grove, yeah, those are just mammoths. Um, but there's a lot of smaller ones that have a lot of history. And, you know, those are cool, too. And then if you want to throw a treasure hunting component, uh, you know, then then that's a whole nother level of excitement. <laughs> do, you, do you ever have the opportunity to go and actually look for shipwrecks down there? Uh, we went with Mel Fisher Treasures. We did an episode with those guys. They're based out of Key West. Obviously, Mel Fisher was the guy that, um, you know, found the mother load back in 1985, I believe, of the Atocha. Um, that was a Spanish galleon that was leaving Cuba, headed back to Spain, got caught in a hurricane. And obviously it was the, the, the one ship that was laden down with all the loot, you know, all the booty, <laughs> all the gems, all the, all the, uh, you know, all the had, you know, silver coins, gold bars. It was loaded with, uh, uh, the, the emeralds from the Colombian mines. So it was just, it was loaded, loaded with, um, treasure and that broke up the ship's not there but these guys still go out and look for treasure and we did a show and we did find a real eight and you know when you hold something like that that's been underwater for 400 years and now it just seen the light of day that's a pretty wild experience too you know that was that was a lot of fun you know diving that old ancient you know shipwreck site now obviously the ship's gone yeah but there's artifacts all littered through this trail. You know, it was a trail four or five miles long where all the artifacts and, you know, even the nails, the bolts, the, the muskets, everything was just strewn, you know, big area uh, west of Key West, very far west of Key West. Um, so, yeah, that was that was pretty wild, too. So I always enjoy stuff like that. You know, it's just it's always um, that that history aspect to it is just you know, it's just it kind of get that. The, the hair on the back of your neck to stand up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We're already going to a place where most people don't go, and then you add that on top of it. Right, right. No, and it's just it, it, something hasn't seen the light of day for such a long period of time. It's just like, wow. Well, yeah, it's, it's just a, the whole history aspect of it. It adds a whole new dimension to the diving there because, you know, you, you think about it, the, when, you're, when you're diving, you've got, you know, depending upon your depth, your ability, your tanks, you know, you've got, you know, half an hour down there, maybe an hour, maybe a little more. and. Yep. The history now you you it's part of your, your prep. Now you've um, got the story there, and you have to go down and get to put your hands on this here. And there's just such. A, I mean, I don't know about you, Billy, but do you, do you feel like that connection there when you actually put your hands on a wreck that you've been reading about? Yeah, absolutely. It is a connection, and and like what you guys have up there, your wreck stay preserved. Those those you know shipwrecks that have so much history, those wooden schooners. They they look exactly like they did 400 years ago, 300 years ago. So the salt doesn't rip them apart. You guys, you know, it's such a unique aspect. There's so much diving history and tradition up in that part of the country, and that's just yeah. that, that that that's got to be a wow factor for you guys. Oh yeah, and you know, and we are very fortunate with that. Uh, you know, I just went out and dove the uh, Thomas Hume last weekend, and I mean, going down that line, you know, <laughs> it's only it's 100 it's 140 feet of sand, 125 to the deck. And right when it opens up beneath you, you know, it's right about, I don't know, right about 70 feet, you start seeing boards, and then right about, you know, 90, it just opens right up there, and there she is, you know. And 
you know, you're seeing the ship that you put the masts back up on it, you think you could sail it away. You know, it's just, it blows your mind to see these things. And they, we have them here and there. It's, um, you know, very rare to see these things, you know, even on a worldwide scale. Yeah. Now, now the Thomas Hume, I am officially jealous, Kevin, that you got on that before I got a chance to be there. <laughs> uh, now that that like you said, that one's pretty much intact. I mean, it's just the mast is is knocked over, and and the mast is still there. Yeah, and, I mean, the, the the boat. I think I think it's got a cabin or two missing on it there. But uh, yeah, the, the entire hull, you know, penetration. Um, yeah, it's it's there. Yeah. Wow. And and that experience you described is the same as when I went on the Ironsides for the first time. The Ironsides is in 125 foot of of water in. It's usually buoyed, and you come down, and they've got twin boilers on, Jack and Jill. And just that first time you come in, it, it opens up. And, and the visibility, sometimes that visibility not being crystal clear uh, adds a depth to the wreck. You you can kind of, items are revealed, and the shape of the wreck is revealed as you get closer to it. Uh, and, and some of these deeper wrecks also have some pretty nice visibility for the Great Lakes. This, this time of year, as long as we still have a good thermocline going, uh, some of them will be 50 to 100 feet. What, wow. what did you have on the Thomas Hume? Well, you know, actually, when we were there, the visibility was about 75 feet. But after I went and edited my videos and pictures, um, you know, looking at some of Bob's video, it's looking like better than 100 feet on his. Um, but, you know, visually, we had 100 feet. We had 75 feet there. It, it was awesome, though. Yeah, here, I'm going to send you a, a link to an article so you can see what it looks like. Let's see here. If I hit the right button. <laughs> well, there's a lot of video on YouTube, of course, about it. Well, actually, just pull me up on Facebook. I just changed my uh, cover page to the bow of the Thomas Hume. Um, yeah. it's, it I, is I just, a really cool wreck. Yeah, I just <laughs> pasted into the uh, chat room the uh, the link to the MSRA site. Because I, I believe the Michigan Shipwreck Associates was the one who discovered that wreck. I know rediscovered it. I know they've been heavily involved in the documentation on it. I cannot say for certain who was it that discovered it there, but I know that they've you know MS, MSRA has been heavily involved in document documenting that. So yeah, yeah, they, I think they even did an exhibit that's uh, toured through museums on that particular wreck. But they, they have that one shot where you're looking down the bow and you can see the uh, some of the lines still hanging there. I'm assuming those are chained with just with uh, we're seeing zebra mussels on them. Uh, yeah, if, if you're looking at, at the bowsprit, you're seeing the chains off to draping off starboard and port, but you've also got, you know, ropes down there, heavily muscle-encrusted, but you've got ropes down there visible even yet. Yeah, that's, um, that's unbelievable that the ropes are still hanging on. But, yeah, and, and, the, and the bowsprit still stands. I mean, that's where else are you going to see a 19th-century wreck? Thomas Hume went down in 1891. I believe it was built 1870, plus or minus. Yep. I'm not a, I'm certain on yeah, that no, there. You, you nailed it, both of those. Okay. And she, uh, you know, where else are you going to see a shipwreck been on the bottom for 125 years Wow. that still has, now, that's not common. You know, yet, you know I've, I've right. built quite a few wrecks, and it's very rare to see the ropes on them. <laughs> okay, yeah. but, but, but they're there. So, um, and, and, and this one. I was oh, going to say, there. it just shows where that went down because we've got you know within 50 miles of where we live there's probably 30 40 shipwrecks similar age but they're not quite in the, well they're definitely not in this good a condition and it's because of the how they how they went down 
where they are, the, the sands, the current, you know, the shallower wrecks, the ones at 30 and 70, are not nearly as well-preserved as this one. Mm-hmm. Well, this one even has the artifacts on it. I mean, uh, when you go into the boat and you're actually looking at the items used by the sailors. Now, the Thomas Hume is a very sad story. Uh, it's one of those ships that just went missing. There, there were no survivors on that. And, you know, Billy had touched upon, upon the history of these boats earlier. And, you know, when you go inside and you're looking at the cooking utensils these guys may have been using just a few hours before this thing went down, you know, um, there are shoes in there, you know, some very, very personal effects inside this this. Uh, you know, there are a number of items which, uh, you know, I saw in my video, things which you just really didn't have the bottom time to really, in, you know, sit there and, and check them out. Plus, you know, you're doing a penetration at 140 feet. So you're, you know, there's, you want to be very cautious when you're down there. And, uh, but honestly, that that was my best dive of all time. <laughs> that was just last Sunday. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That human element, the human story to... When you can combine scuba diving with the human story, it's always the most compelling of stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I think if we transplanted this in Florida, I think the, the worms would have a field day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that nice cold water up there, that cold, fresh water keeps it all nice and intact. Yeah. What lake, I'm, is, I'm that, sure. guys, what lake is that in? Which great that lake? That is in Lake Michigan. Right. And this is right on the line between the – Illinois uh, boundary and the Michigan boundary. Gotcha. So I'm not sure, Kevin, do you, did because you went on a charter, didn't you? No, I, I took I took my, my own boat out there, and oh. I not not alone. I we, we we took two small boats out there. We had a pair yeah. of 17 footers out there. Yeah, because it was 24 gonna, miles offshore. <laughs> 24 miles offshore. Boat? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, we're we're, we're pretty hardcore, but yeah. I went with a friend who's a he's a he's a tech diver. Who uh, you know he's he, he this guy does uh, three hundred for breakfast yeah. and he's he's got a seventeen footer I've got a seventeen footer all in all we had five guys out there um, you know it was it, it was a great a great dive you know um, things things got a little complicated out there but the, the, the dive portion was breathtaking uh, nice. we all agreed on that it was um, you know you just don't see. That you know wrecks like that in sport depth, and it's actually a little below, a little bit beyond sport depth. But you, you can reach the deck at 125. So, yeah. um, you know, you you just don't see that. Um, no. But no, that one it's it's been a popular one. The charters, you, uh, many of the charters are running out of uh, Indiana, uh, Burns Harbor, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. The that go over to it. So, is it on the Michigan side or the Illinois side, Kevin? Can you can you say? Um, everything I've read on it indicates that it is in Illinois waters. I know that there's been some discussion about the artifacts on it, and Illinois is the one making the decisions on the artifacts on it, okay. from what I've read. Because okay. so, uh, I, I knew it was pretty close, and, and the, because it does, does have the artifacts on, it's been real hard to get numbers for that wreck. And just you, you can tell that divers haven't been on it before the 1980s, because that's when we used to be able to take anything we wanted off wrecks, and then the 80s they... Everybody kind of came to an agreement in the law that you, you couldn't take any more off. So it, it does yeah. provide a way of, of, of dating the discovery, at least. Yeah, but Billy, if, if you're going to do you know some, some Great Lakes wreck diving, the Thomas Hume, highly recommended. It's in sport depth, great visibility. Um, you know, well, if I'm doing it, I'm go, if I, when I do it, I'm going with you. So you don't even have yeah. to tell me. I'm just going to call you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't want to reinvent. Call me up. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I don't want to reinvent the wheel here. No. <laughs> yeah, we're we're not going to make you go search for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're we're just the knuckleheads that put it on TV. We rely on the experts to you know put us on the good stories. You know. <laughs> you guys are the stars. Right. You guys would be the stars of the show. Just get us to the racks. <laughs> I can you know I can get you there, but I, I got to say that uh, I'm I'm when I was given the location of the wreck, I was told I had to be I was asked to be very careful about sharing it's not something i'm putting on facebook or anything you know but uh yeah yeah billy if, if you want to go i will take you there tomorrow man let me nice. know yeah we won't tell coordinates or anything we'll keep no. it hush hush we'll just tell the story we'll, you know? we'll have to make sure we got that neon buoy not going though <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we, we don't want to visit on, on google earth here you know yeah. so yeah. <laughs> boy wouldn't that be something that'd be when the when the satellite would come over and get your photo well, when we were there, there was a mooring on it, but there's no buoy. It's a, a floating mooring line, so you kind of got to watch for it. So. Well, that, like I said, there's a that charter. There's a couple charter companies that are making that a regular stop. Uh, so there's been a lot of divers getting on it. And it's it's good for a charter company when you get a wreck in that condition. Oh yeah, we we had a charter come out and joined us. We we had three boats tied up to it there. All in all, it was it made for a great photo op because we had um, eleven divers down there. You know coming and going and you know we had side mounts we had we had rebreathers i mean uh you, you, you name it for uh uh going deep it was there so right. now billy down there in florida you've got plenty of caves do you get in any of the cave or cavern diving we uh we actually did a show this year called uh cave country and it was uh me and mitch going through our cabin certification and getting the taste of cave diving and we went to uh jenny springs uh, which is, you know, just north of Gainesville in mm-hmm. the Cape Country area. And, uh, yeah, we got, we went, we, we went through, you know, putting our primary, uh, line down our secondary and, uh, you know, learn how to buddy breathe out of a cave, you know, with your eyes closed. So it was definitely an adventure. <laughs> it was our first taste, you know, we were open water guys and, uh, it was, um, it was fun. It was, it was like kind of like going through boot camp and, uh, you definitely fine-tune your buoyancy skills while you're yeah. uh, learning cavern. You know, the posture, the po- the pose, which I'm glad I did because, you know, it just it, I, I probably dive more like that now than I did prior to that class. And it's always, it's always good to continue your education, you know. That Ginny Springs is beautiful. I, I dove there about three years ago. Now, I noticed looking at the videos that you guys shot – that uh, it looks like the the grating on the cave in the back is a little different. What is that apparatus? I couldn't tell. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, they had a get that. That's the ballroom, and uh-huh. that's obviously where everyone can get a great taste of cavern diving, or or even yeah. you know what it would sense the sense of being in a cave uh, at the ballroom at Ginny. And yeah, there's a grate, but there's that device which I think is measuring the water flow that is coming out of. The spring. Oh, okay. So it's an aquifer. So it's it, it's measuring the force that's coming through there. Uh, I didn't know if that was some drone that they were. You know, <laughs> if you got too close, it would zap you. Or <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's something with like the University of Florida. You know, and they're 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 because there's obviously some of the springs there. Um, you know, the flow changes. Ginny uh, right. seems to be pretty constant, but maybe it's like the temperature of of the health of the of the uh, of the aquifer that's pushing up all the water, um, yeah, but that whole system is just it's a it's another world. It's a whole nother way of diving. It's a whole nother 
it's just it's it's intense. It really is, and you gotta you gotta be have the right skill set. You gotta have the right equipment, right mentality, and and be well trained and 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 just uh, you know it's it, that's a it's like going to another planet, really. Yeah. Yeah. The, the... Now, now, Billy, I, I I've never been cave diving, but it's something I definitely want to try. Um, yeah. Obviously, as you know, I'm a recreational diver with about 307 dives. On me, I can I obviously cannot just go down there and dive caves. What's no. what's the best what's the best route to get there to, to to start diving caves? Cabin certification. That's like the uh, the baby step into that world. So you want to go through the cabin certification. Then there's an intro to cave diving, and then cave certification after that. Um, so and and I think there's even another layer to the cave certification after that um, second course. But it's cavern. That cavern certification class gets you into a system, a cave system, but you can still see that ambient light. You still have that way out. But it's an overhead environment and, you know, you're learning the skills to, um, you know, to, for, for buoyancy so you don't stir up the, the silt at the bottom of a cave system. Uh, you're learning how to put down that line in case you need to use that line to get back out of a cave system. Uh, you're learning all those, all those beginning techniques. Um, but it's a great way of getting introduced into that world. And really, Ginny Springs in that ballroom, Darren, as you know, yeah. that's like ideal. You know, that's like oh. the ideal dive to get that taste. That it, you can get in there. Uh, you, you don't have to too much. <laughs> no, you, but you can you can experience some of the darkness. There are spots in that cavern yep. where you look, and even though there's light behind you, it is it is pitch black. Yeah, it's that back corner, like yeah. that back corner, and then you can like shimmy your way over this this little ridge and you're, and you're basically doing the army crawl, yep. you know, in this little space. So yeah, you can, you can get that feeling for sure. And then the, the turn around and see the opening and it's just like angel light coming yeah. down there into the water. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. That's exactly how it felt. It was like, there's the light. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I see the light. I see the light. <laughs> yeah, in, the, in the back of your mind, it's like, you know, okay, now, now what's going to go wrong? Cause you know, for us, uh, it's you know we're we're used to unless we're doing a penetration in wrecks and and we don't do that that often right. up here but you you can always pop to the surface now you might not want to at 130 feet but <laughs> it, you at least psychologically can feel like doing that but when you get in those caverns and you've got that overhead above you it's a whole uh, other mindset yes and I don't know if I'm like you know I you know we did the cavern certification but me and Mitch had to sit there long and hard on that. You know, we had about a five-hour drive back to Miami. We're like, would we really want to take the next step? <laughs> you know, because it's a huge commitment. It's a, right. and it's, an, it's a mentality. And I think at the end of the day, we were like, ah, oh, we're open water, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm kind of the same way. I did, uh, I think it was Devil's Den. Yeah. And that one I was surprised that they, that one, there's, you could easily get yourself in trouble. Yeah. Uh, without trying too hard, you know, because I'm, I'm a little bit on the larger side. And I'm not into, I don't think I'll ever be uh, one of those cave divers where you're like squeezing in and taking the tanks off and pushing yeah. it ahead of you. It's, it's like if I no, can't. No, 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 no equipment's coming off. Yeah, I, I draw I, the line. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> if, I, if I can't fit through on my own, you know, if, I, if I'm if skipping breakfast and then holding my breath to, to squeeze <laughs> in, that's a little much. Hey, I'm with you. Darren, I'm with you 1,000%, bud. <laughs> Well, well, sorry, guys. I'm I'm gonna rock the boat because I'm because I'm I'm that guy that wants to get through that little hole. And come right. out the other 
that I've got to pass my tanks through there. I'm, yeah. I'm that guy. So uh, yeah. I'll do that. Um, you, you should look into it then. You should oh, yeah? look into you know, going to that part of Florida and, and checking it out. And there's great – I mean, it's, there's like, it's like a fraternity of divers in that oh, area. Yeah. It's unbelievable. We were able to tap into a little bit about of that culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a small it's a small little town. These are small towns in central Florida. Everyone knows each other. And it's uh yeah, it's 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 quite the experience and and it and they're just passionate. Some of the most passionate divers I've ever come across. It is totally on my list of things to do because you know, so much of our wreck diving procedures are written yep. by cave divers. Yeah. I mean, I mean Right, uh, wreck penetration, cave penetration. You know, you're, you're on the same wavelength. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. still going there. Yeah, it, you're right, and it's like it's not even really cabin certification. It's overhead environment certification. Right. right. So yeah, it's absolutely the same rules and and, and the same concept. So if if that's yeah, you would be totally into it then. Yeah, you know, the, for me, like I got into diving because I wanted to see sharks and whales and animals, yeah. and that's why that's the open water side of me but i can see like the engineer type guys and the the, the equipment guys this is this is almost like a math problem or an yeah. equation <laughs> and that and that's them figuring things out you know it's a, it's a how, just, many, how many stage bottles they need how many scooters yeah. for how long and yeah, 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 if yeah. things go bad yeah. way at the end right how do you know you can still get out yeah it's it and hey that's funny i mean it, that, that's why diving's so awesome there's so many yeah. Different ways to attack it, I guess. There's many ways to peel the onion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I just heard so many stories about about the old timers, you know, the Gene Turners, and what these guys were doing, and, and you know, things which would make your patty instructor skin crawl. But like, oh, I mean, I, and I, I'm not going to go about the same route. Of course, I'm going to have you know redundancy, but um, you know what the, what these guys have been doing in the you know in the old days of finding wrecks. Um, I want to go there. I am going there. It's just I'm I'm taking my time. Like I say, I'm I'm a third year diver. Um, you know, Hume was th- dive 307 for me. So um, I'm passionate about diving, but that, that's that's not a, a way that I want to meet my maker. So I'm I'm being no. smart about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think I think the rebreather is going to be the next step for me, and then the, the rebreather is going to be the tech, and then if once I got the rebreather, then you just slide right in the cave. <laughs> Yeah. There's a little bit more to it that I think, Dan. <laughs> a little more to it than that. So. Well, so, so, yeah, there's, 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 I guess there's a big debate, too, with the rebreathers. There's been some accidents in the cave systems. Just it's having that system, yeah, one sensor or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. I don't know enough, but I just know there's, uh, you know, there's this debate. You know, there's talk. You know, rebreathers are the, the hot thing. They are, I mean, just so cool, but it's you got to rely on your equipment to make sure that thing is functioning properly. Yeah, there's there's plenty of forums all dedicated to just the, the, the like you mentioned, the sensors, the approach and the sensors. Yeah. Well, well, from what I've seen, from what I've read, the folks who are using rebreathers for, you know, serious wreck diving, you know, they are carrying enough bailout gas to get them safely to the surface. So it's yeah. really, you know, if... If those are our audience, if you're thinking you're going to put on a 50-pound rebreather and be completely self-contained and not have to worry about any bailout gases and things, that's not unless you want to be a statistic, okay? Yeah. Um, we, we look at what these folks are doing. You know, that, that's still pretty bulky apparatus to go tech, to go, go below 130 safely. Because um, 
your your side mounting, um, you know, 80s or 100s. You're you're carrying, you know, you're self-contained, but you're carrying a lot of equipment with you now. Yeah, you are. Yep. Yeah, and and what everybody who's doing the rebreather, you still have to plan it as if you got to go open circuit. Uh, So there's a lot of redundancy that you have to build into that. But that sounds like a topic for another episode. (laughs) That could probably be a whole season's worth of uh, discussions. (laughs) <laughs> now, now you mentioned marine life uh, that you're seeing down there. What what's uh, probably some of the more unusual or beautiful animals you're seeing? Yeah, I've had a great. This actually has been a great year for that. Um, we started this season. I went down to Mexico. I had a good friend of mine, Pat Ford. He's an underwater photographer, older gentleman. He graces the covers of a lot of fishing magazines. But he calls me up and he says, "Hey, you want to jump on a plane and go to Mexico?" and uh, film sailfish. I went, yeah, why not? <laughs> and then I thought about it. I'm like, what do you mean we're going to film sailfish? He goes, well, we go down to Mexico, we jump on a charter boat, and then we go out in like four to six foot seas, and we look for the frigate birds. And from January to March, off of Isla Mujeres, you know, the, the, the sardines come in, the Mexican sardines. And every sailfish from the Yucatan up to the Gulf of Mexico, even from Florida, they all come down in this one little patch of ocean where there's an upwelling. And that's where all the sardines show up and all the sailfish show up. And I was able to film 40 to 50 sailfish at once attacking bait balls. So the sailfish come up underneath and, like, bring the sardines up from the bottom and then just corner them into this bait ball, and then the, it was funny. The sailfish would go one by one. They were very polite, and one by one go into this bait ball, whack the sardines with their bill, and just tenderize them with their mouth and just decimate this bait ball until there was nothing. And the cool thing was once the bait ball was done, boom, 50 sailfish disappear in a second, and all that's left in the water is uh, scales from the sardines. <laughs> So it looks like it's snowing. <laughs> so I was like, holy crap, that's pretty wild. And, uh, you know, I'm like jumping off this perfectly good boat in six-foot seas in Mexico and like an hour before I was on a plane. You know, it was wow. you literally landed, jump on a, uh, a taxi, jump in a boat. They hustle 16 miles off of Isla Mujeres, which is right outside Cancun. And next thing you know, you see frigate birds pounding the surface and you jump in and there's a bunch of sailfish. So wow. it was it was pretty wild. And then we went to Bimini um, in March, and uh, we did the great hammerhead shark dives over there. And that was that was spectacular. And that's Bimini's literally 45 minutes from Miami. You can almost swim there. <laughs> and um, and and certain time of year, you know, the big hammerheads come in, and you're in sandy bottom, 20 feet of water. You can do, you know, one tank and last you two hours and just film, film, film until your heart's content. And every hammerhead, it's the great hammerhead species. So they're the largest species of hammerhead in the world. And these guys were 12, 14 foot long and just beautiful, beautiful creatures. And, you know, they, they literally don't want anything to do with you. They don't even like bumping into themselves. And really the, the only thing you need to protect yourself from a 12 foot, 14 foot hammerhead shark is like a $2 piece of PVC pipe that you just put right in front of you. And if the hammerhead shark even comes close to that PVC pipe, they will turn around in two seconds and skedaddle. So it was like, 
this is pretty 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 easy shark diving. And now, was, what is it about the pipe they don't like? Is it just the they? They're, they're, it's almost like they're delicate. Right. <laughs> so if if they feel like they're gonna bump into it, I don't think they really see it because they have that cephalofoil head of theirs. Yep. So the eyeballs are out on the side, and when they come into close to the bait box, um, it, they almost sense that little PVC pipe, just white PVC pipes. We stick it in the sand, and it sits about two feet tall, and it's right in front of you. You kind of crouch down behind it, and if they come up to that right before they hit it, they will just go to the left or go to the right and avoid it completely. Uh-huh. They, they so must the, have some way of, uh, of, of sensing it and realizing that that's yeah. not something I'm good at avoiding. Right, and and – I, you know, I was watching, you know, seven of these sharks come in at the same time, and they never even bumped into each other. So it was like they're very cautious, very cautious sharks. <laughs> but gorgeous. I mean, probably the most gorgeous shark I've ever seen in my life. And it was just what an experience. So, yeah, I, I'm always seeking out those animal encounters, big animal encounters. That's what really, for me, anyways, you know, Mitch, my co-host on the show, he loves the treasure aspect of things. He loves... Uh, he loves killing lionfish. <laughs> That's oh, his there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got we got a little lionfish problem down here, if you didn't know. And, no, uh, we keep hearing people talking about that they're tasty. Is that true? Oh, they're so good. Um, have you ever had hogfish? I can't say that I have. Hogfish, that I'm aware of. Yeah, hogfish is a beautiful white fillet, very common fish down um, in the Caribbean, throughout the Keys, and... Like we just ate at a restaurant called Hogfish Grill the other day and had hogfish tacos. But it's like a snapper. Hogfish is like snapper, nice white fillet. Uh, lionfish are just like that. You know, it's a nice flaky fillet that we've eaten it. We've killed the lionfish, brought them up on the boat and stuck them in a bucket of, you know, salt water. Let it, you know, sit there in the brine and whipped it out 10 minutes later and chopped it up. Had wasabi, soy sauce, ate it right on the boat. Mm. Grilled it, you can fry it, ceviche, anything. It, it, it works in all those in all those recipes. So they taste great. They're an invasive species. They're not supposed to be here. They're eating all the local fish, and uh, they have no natural predators, and they are definitely winning the war. So the only way to really combat it is scuba divers because you can't catch these things online, and, 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 and you, know, you know, fishermen can't catch them. So it's up to the scuba divers to really the, – the, the reefs and the wrecks that we visit the most, we are able to, you know, eradicate the lionfish from. Um, but the problem is they're in deeper water. They're under bridges. They're they're pretty much everywhere, and they're uh, they're not supposed to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate they got in there. Yeah. It's like I guess Florida is just like a breeding ground for that. We got pythons in the Everglades. Yeah. <laughs> we got iguanas running around that not, are not supposed to be here. We got lionfish in the water. It's just, just the, I, I guess no. it's like the soup of life. I guess I don't know. Now, do lionfish have any kind of a natural predator? And not in this area, obviously. But what no. what, what normally keeps the population in check? Uh, in the Pacific, their natural predators, I believe, are sea snakes, and okay. and they're just naturally. Kept in balance. That's the way it kind of evolved. But down here, we don't have that. And lionfish can produce 30,000 eggs every couple days. And I believe that sea snake that you're talking about is fairly toxic on its own. Yeah, I believe so. So yeah, I, think, I, think, I think it got part of its toxin from ingesting lionfish. lionfish. Right? It's not like you want to introduce those either. 
No, no. You know, and I know, you know, we got some great universities down here, University of Miami, Nova Southeastern University, and there's a lot of bright minds on the problem. And, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're, you know, let, I guess it's just going to have to be evolute, you know, time, you know, they're going to have to figure something out or any, yeah. any way to just neuter them. I don't know. <laughs> They'll figure <laughs> something out or nature will find a way. Yeah. It thinks things will eventually come into balance. Right. Uh, now with your program, you're doing a lot of video. So what's, what kind of gear are you taking down there? I mean, is it a bunch of GoPros or do you, are you going oh, yeah. with a larger housing? Well, yeah, we, you know, we kind of evolved over time. And the good thing about this is everything's getting smaller and better. <laughs> oh, good. Because <laughs> uh, back in the day, I would have a, you know, a big old Gates housing, you know, weighed 50 pounds. It was humongous. It looked like R2-D2 and uh, it would almost break your back or kill you in a current when you're diving one of these deeper wrecks out in the Gulf Stream. But everything seems to be getting smaller and everything seems to be getting better. And what we're trying, what we're using primarily right now is a GoPro 4 Black, but we're shooting it in an Oogie Foot housing, which is made in Belgium. So we basically just take the body of the GoPro and we use this housing um, that has its own battery pack to make the GoPro 4 Black. That's what we use, the 4 Black. We shoot 4K, 30 frames per second. Uh, we plug it into these Oogie Foot housings that have their own battery banks that can last up to six hours. Uh, we use 64 gig cards so you can shoot all day. Um, the Oogie Foot housing has its own glass. So it's, I don't know what's going on with that glass, but it's, it's just taken the GoPro body, it's, it's, it's guts and, and just enhancing it. But what's really cool about the Oogie Foot housing is it has its own external monitor and it's big. Um, so it's a small housing, nice big monitor. And we use Sea uh, Life uh, lights. We okay. use some light and motion lights as well, and and that's our formula for uh, for the show. And we're using uh, the Oogie Foots have red filters on it, so anything after 15 feet, 20 feet, we flip the red filter on, um, and then shoot 4K. And it's funny because we've taken the old footage of the big cameras and the big housings, and I put it up against the, the GoPro 4 Oogie Foot combo, and you can't tell the difference. Wow, that's know? nice. Yeah, so everything's getting better. Everything's getting smaller, and, you know, that that, that setup that I have now can fit in a backpack as opposed wow. to a big, you know, Pelican case. Well, it must be enough, a lot nicer than having to deal with airlines and stuff. With... Yep, yep. We, it's cut down our cost big time, and, you know, we're always looking at ways to streamline the operation, and uh, that has been a big, big factor. So yeah, yeah, it, it is very impressive what these small cameras are doing. I mean, I, I I use a small camera as well, and I just invested in getting a kind of a fancier camera. And yep. really, now that I'm learning how to use a small camera better, I'm kind of like not really. The, 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 I picked up a, a Canon that has a much better, much larger um, light, much larger sensor on it, better for low yep. light. And I'm just you know, aside from the light sensitivity. Um, I kind of like my little camera better. <laughs> so, yeah. so. Listen, when you put it on TV, you know, a lot of stations, some of them are still only shooting, you know, some of the, the cable networks are still 1080 or, you know, they're yeah. not 4K. So, you know, it's just, it's going to get downgraded anyways. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about the, the, if you're shooting 4Ks, you always have that option to crop down to 1080. Yep. And, you know, you can. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of been my approach to the video is just shoot a crap load and then hope you got time to edit it. <laughs> yeah, that's – hey, listen, it's – that you know, getting 
getting the we like to call it getting the clay on the table, and then the editing part is really the yeah. where the story comes alive, where you know you can do some color corrections and really kind of fine tune everything. So the editing part is is the most time consuming and laborious task of the whole production, um, and that's uh you know that's we leave that to Mitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you got him in the back room locked up and he's oh uh, he's in the yeah, he's in his cave we call yeah. it the man cave he's over in his man cave just and he he'll uh, yeah he's more of a night owl I'll wake up early and do all the relationships and you know all the all the all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's with that with that editing is where a lot of the magic pops out because you know when you're yeah. down there, you know there's things which you don't see which the camera does, and then you come back and you start you know you know uh, bumping up the contrast and knocking down the light a little bit and taking out some some of the green or the or the blue in your case, yep. and you know then like wow, wow I mean I didn't even know that diver was there or I yep. didn't even know that know there were fish down there or I mean wait I'm seeing bubbles over here there must be a diver over here too you know and there's so many things that. You know, once you start editing to bring out, um, that's really where the magic is, in my opinion. There, I I, I, I enjoy that big time. So yeah, I mean that too. And for us, it's for us, it's the storyline. Like, um, I I I'd recommend you guys go watch one of our episodes on uh, scubanation.com. It's called Mystery of the Gulf. And what happened was there was a, a a plane. Planes were when Bautista was leaving Cuba. Uh, when Castro was taken over, there was rumor that there were B-26 bombers uh, that were filled with gold that were headed from Havana to Tampa. And I think a couple of them crashed, and, you know, treasure hunters went out there, you know, looking for a B-26 bomber. They found one. It didn't have gold, but it was a wreck. You know, the plane went down in 1942. They were able to identify uh, uh, the plane and the guys that were on that plane were still KIA, and they were able to solve a mystery. So, you know, as good as, like, the, the footage could be or, or, or the, the, the content, the storyline is, like, what really is important for us. And if we get an unbelievable storyline like this where there was treasure hunters looking for gold from Batista, Cuba, and they ended up solving a mystery from World War II – to involve scuba diving, it's like holy crap. That's like the holy grail. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, I want to see that. I'm there. Yeah, I'm there. It, yep, you got me. You got me. Yep. <laughs> and this, yeah. So storylines are that involve scuba. That's. I mean, you could go back to grainy footage, and it doesn't matter. You know, it could. Yeah. It could be. It could be black and white. It doesn't matter. You know, it's the story that will get you every time. You know. And you guys have a lot of history up there in the Great Lakes. There's a lot of stories to be told, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, sorry. there are a lot of stories, and you know, and, and and they're not all tragedies. I mean, when you start, you know, reading up on the on the day to day life and some of these things, it's a, a lot of you know heroism, and yep. you know, I mean, you know, these these guys, they they knew what the possibilities were, and they didn't want to die that way. So generally, they they usually got off the boats. You know, not always, obviously, but. Generally, they got off the boats. They'd send the, you know, they'd run them into shore, and you know, there, there actually are a lot of, you know, humorous stories about this, some of these things that happened. They're yeah. mixed with the, with the tragedy. Um, you know, that'd be a whole, a whole another episode here. You know, right. sometime, sometime, look up the story on the demise of the Hattie Wells. Okay, when the right. Hattie Wells finally went down, and uh, there's a storyline to that which will make most of the gals chuckle. 
So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got my interest now. <laughs> I mean, that's fun. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the, the, the captain interviewed on it, uh, one of his statements of the court was, uh, give me a woman to find my courage anytime. So, <laughs> take a look at the story on the Hattie Wells. You know, and you've got, a, you know, there's a lot of funny stuff out there. You know, a lot of tragedy. I'm right but, now. <laughs> Yeah, well, a lot of this was, uh, I mean, you look at the time, there wasn't entertainment like we have now. So when an event happened, that was big news, and everybody wanted to know everything about it. So sure. when you had a a storm and six shipwrecks went down, you had media from all over the country up there yeah. uh, covering it. And, well, shoot, I mean, uh, obviously the Edmund Fitzgerald, it's popular, oh, yeah. you know, by music, and, you know, that story's still told every time that Gordon Lightfoot song plays. I mean, it's it's history. You know, it's it's compelling. Yeah, well, when when you look at the story and everything that went around it and all the legends and the speculation yep. and the different opinions, I mean, you know, that's a whole other episode right there, you know. But, uh, yep. you know, heck, we got got a museum, don't you know, pretty much dedicated to up, up at Whitefish Point. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, you know, the most investigated shipwreck, well, the second most, you know, just second to the Titanic, you know. Yep. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a hell of a story. Hey, if it wasn't for the song, I wouldn't know that the lake was called Ketchagoonie or whatever it was called. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's, I believe from the song of Hiawatha, uh, Longfellow poem there. Um, yeah. Hiawatha's people, uh, the Indians, or whatever tribe he was part, called referred to as, as, as uh, Ketchagoonie. So, yep, Ketchagoonie. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There you have it. So. Nice. Well, I nice. think yeah, uh, we're getting to that point where we need to jump on into the news here pretty soon so uh mitch you're sure you're sure welcome to stay i think my wife wants me, i think my wife wants me to watch netflix with her now okay. i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> but hey fellas this is awesome uh let's stay in touch and let's toss out some show ideas together let's Certainly. toss yeah. those around yeah you know? so uh where can people uh follow you guys yeah, you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us uh, Scuba Nation on Facebook, on Twitter at Scuba Nation, on Instagram at Scuba Nation TV, uh, Fox Sports Sun. If you have uh, Direct TV or Dish, look under your regional cable. If you have sports packages, you might just get us. And if not, you can go to uh, scubanation.com, and that's where all of our videos are. And uh, just you know, sign up to our mailing list because we're always doing trips that. We'll feature you on episodes like we're going to Mexico on August 20th and we're doing whale sharks and cenotes, but we're bringing down 15 people um, that signed up for the trip. We're filming it for an episode and we let all let everyone everyone be a part of one of our episodes. So it's usually good times, good fun, scuba diving. So stay uh, up to current events with us on scubanation.com and join the mailing list. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, guys. Yeah, thank you much, Billy. It's been been great. Yeah. Awesome. No, this has been great, and uh, let's keep in touch, fellas. And uh, I'll come see you guys up in uh, up in Michigan. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're both right. waiting for you. And you guys come down to South Florida, and we'll take you diving down here. Yeah, I do want to check out the caves down there for sure. And uh, some of Rex got my interest. That's no doubt about it. I'll be there. You got it, bud. All right, guys. Thanks. Hey, take thank care. you, Billy. Bye. Well, that was that was great having him on, and I feel bad for calling him Mitch. That was Billy. Billy C., uh, Mitch is his co-host. They're on that Fox Sport Network, like he was saying. You can go to Scuba Nation. I believe it's scubanation.com. We'll have links in the show notes. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have uh, Scuba Tech. We have Mullinex. 
We had somebody come on. We have Dave Toneman also joined in. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dave. Good to hear yeah. you here, man. Also, if you're enjoying the program and it's at least worth a dollar, why not donate to our Patreon account? If you go to scubaobsessed.com, follow the links to Patreon, and you can make a donation. We do give some behind-the-scenes looks, some Patreon-only specials, and we'll be adding some things coming up. So that Patreon certainly helps. Uh, we're doing well, and uh, that goes to improve things. Our first milestone is to improve some audio gear, so we're going to be doing some audio gear upgrades Uh Kevin on his own has actually upgraded his headset, so uh, we're going to continue along those paths and uh, try and get some some new gear. Let's see. The first article we have up in the show notes is a scuba company is paying $70,000 after a diver's death. Yeah, I've got it right here. Yeah, here I got it. This one looks to be out of New Zealand. A tourist who died scuba diving off the off its uh, Coromandel Peninsula swam out in a closed... Bay and ran out of air. A Taiwanese woman was on a recreational dive on November 4th, 2014. She wasn't properly supervised and had ill-fitting equipment, WorkSafe said. The diving operator, Cathedral Cove Diving Limited, had been ordered to pay $70,000 in reparations to the woman's family. In a reserve decision issued Tuesday by Judge Simon uh, Menez, company its director, Russell Cochrane, had earlier pled guilty to three health and safety charges for failing to keep the victim safe. On the day of the dive, the woman was left to swim unsupervised, as a work-safe statement said. She swam out in the enclosed bay while the dive was taking place, used up air supply, and was later found hours later floating face down. Her equipment had been selected by Cochrane. The buoyancy compensator BCD device worn on the torso was too big and made it more difficult for her to lift her head to breathe, the statement said. The woman's death was entirely preventable. Work-safe Chief Inspector Keith Stewart said the ill-fated equipment compromised victim's ability to try and breathe when her air supply ran out and the lack of supervision meant she was able to become separated from the dive supervisor and leave the sheltered bay. It also meant she couldn't tell anyone that she was in distress or get help. Yeah, you look at this and there's just so many things went wrong in this deal. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's just how it how it, it adds up, you know, because we you know, we're, we're trained to deal with uh, you know, pretty much any individual failure out there, but you know, between the poor, poor equipment and not being supervised, and it sounds like she was a brand new diver. I'm not seeing I'm, that in here, but it sounds they, like she's pretty new. They they didn't say that, but that's what I'm guessing. But also, it can play a part into it is uh, not accepting poor fitting equipment. I mean, if you're an operator and you don't have a good feeling that things are safe, that they're fitting right, uh, don't go out. You know, the, the, you, you have always have the right to call it. I mean, you may be out yeah. a few bucks, but you know, it's not worth diving, dying for. Any any diver has the right to call a dive with or without cause. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, something that's pointed out to me is that if you're kind of worried about with your buddies, you know, look, looking kind of poorly at you, you can always go down there and say, oh, I just can't clear. And who's yeah. going to know about you? Yeah, I mean, you can always come up with a bad excuse or a, not say bad, meaning uh, an excuse that's not the, tr- the truthful one. But uh, most of your dive buddies should be able to... Uh, to accept that you've made the right decision by calling a dive. And there's been times, I, I, everybody who I've dived with in the club, at least one point in time has decided they didn't want to do the first dive or the second dive for whatever reason. I've had that where you just, after the first dive, something feels off. I mean, you know it's not a deco hit, but there's just something not quite right. And, and why push it? Sometimes it ends up being you were just feeling the start of a cold, and another time it just might be you had a tired day. Mm-hmm. But, well, you know 
and, and this all, all adds up to diver stress, you know, and if you go diving when you feel you shouldn't, you know, whether it's an actual physical reason or psychological or there's just some reason why you don't want to be down that you can't quite put your thumb on, um, it does add up in diver stress. And then, you know, the next thing goes wrong, maybe your, your, max, your mask isn't clearing properly or, you know, it's just cumulative there. Yes. So any diver, I will never fault someone on my boat if they don't want to dive, you know, I, I will applaud them for it. And if they don't want to dive, they, you know, come, come back up a little early, whatever, that's fine. Uh, it, it, it's your decision. So certainly, and no one else, no one else should really, really kill them for it either. So this next one, oh, and I'm, I'm neglecting the chat room here. Uh, underwater Olympic shots are now being taken by robots. So if you've been living under a rock or a cave or like me, has a tree that's grown up in front of the satellite dish inconveniently, uh, the Olympics are going on. And if you're in the pool, they're now being taken by robots. Video games controllers are being used to adjust those cameras. They said it isn't the first year using underwater robotics cameras with the Olympics. Uh uh, Reuters used similar robots during the 2012 London Olympic Games. The method is catching on. And in the past, traditional submerged static remote cameras, you had to visualize the photos you wanted ahead of time and think what race and stroke you wanted to capture. It was limiting, and you could only guess where the swimmer was going to be, and they came in the frame. The camera's placement was slightly miscalculated, and the, finger, the swimmer's fingerprints were cut off in the images. Photographers were still unable to fix the issue till after the swim session wrapped up. The robotics cameras let them zoom in, tilt, spin, get multiple angles. Be exciting many ideas before, and I have a chance to make one happen. I'm doing a lot more photos and a lot less time. The robots don't move along the bottom of the pool, but the housing pods allow the camera Canon 1DX Mark II to adjust slightly. During competition, Bellow stands near the finish line in front of the computer screen with a video game controller to access the camera from afar. He uses the robot features, remote trigger, coupled with the best judgment to capture the swimmer as he or she comes in the frame. See, I was hoping it was a drone. You know, that would be something that would be chasing them, but they must have decided that they don't want to allow something moving in the pool because people could say it was an advantage to one diver or the other. Well, if it's moving in the pool, though, I mean, say it got somehow involved, I mean, interrupted the race or a diver or someone bumped into it. I mean, I can see why they want to keep them fixed and stationary. Well, I, um, I think if they did that, that'd actually make it more interesting. You know, kind of like a, <laughs> make it more yeah, interesting yeah. Or, or accurate, you know. I mean, it's just, yeah. uh, you know, you can't interfere with, I mean, in fact, I kind of wonder if and how much this interferes with the swimmers. I mean, you in the article, it talks about all the, all the cables and all the checks going on. Um, you know, there's a great deal of technology going in the pools with these, with these folks here. Um, you know, and, you know, they've got a lot of stress on them. They got, mm-hmm. you know, they know they're being photographed and videoed and, you know, being shown in their skivvies all the time up there, you know, they're, 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 they're pretty stressed out, you know. Yeah. Um, so this just adds to it. So. Yeah. But they do have what they've considered to be one of the best jobs of the Olympics. There is a scuba diver who is the official earring finder. Yeah, that sounds like a job for Mac. Yeah. <laughs> well, he would be good at it. He'd find it right away. Oh, yeah. So they said if a swimmer loses an earring during a race or practice session – the guy will dive in the pool, retrieve the swimmer's lost earring to help make that swimmer whole again. Now, I'm thinking if there's something th- that you don't want to lose, you might not wear it when you're swimming. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that myself. I mean, they're talking about you know pearl earrings and valuables in this article here. I mean, 
why I mean, why are you wearing that right. in a in a competition? And well, is it maybe like, sponsors? <laughs> maybe your sponsor said you had to wear the earring? <laughs> I don't know, but if it's that important, make sure it's well secured, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh um, you know, put 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 a lanyard on it, you know, or or or, or this is a good carabiner, so yeah, but it says it like uh, the, the lifeguard will clear the entire pool so you, the diver, can retrieve the lost earring. So, wow, I'm, I'm, and I'm not even sure why that is. Why do, I've I've dove I've done scuba diving in pools with people in it. I don't care. And if you can hold your breath long enough, come down and join me. <laughs> well, I think they're doing it kind of to point out, kind of maybe to to mortify the person who lost it. Like, hey, look, we got to stop the whole thing because Joe over here yeah. locked the stud. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to shut everything down here because Joe lost his stud over here now. So yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you said yeah. that I was just, you know, mentally my old school thinking. I was thinking a woman, but you're right. I think there are probably as many guys with earrings uh, mm-hmm. now that they could have lost it. So. Well, I didn't want to be sexist there. It's a, you know, everybody wears earrings or, you know, whatever jewelry they're referring to on this here. Um, I, I, I've got the maximum number of holes in my head now that I ever want. So I'm not adding any more in. I, you know, I, I could comment on that, Darren, but, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and then scuba divers use a balloon to raise a slate wagon. Yeah. They're referring to a balloon. This is a, it's a lift bag as, as we know it, but, uh, yeah. It, well, it's kind of like, you know, you got your, your scuba suit and your oxygen tank. You know, why wouldn't you have a balloon? Mm-hmm. A team of history loving scuba divers from, uh, I Mag needs to be here. He, he could pronounce this. Anglesey. And they've raised a 110-year-old Welsh state wagon using a giant inflatable balloon. The members of the Scuba Aquatic Club discovered the important piece of industrial history where diving Lynn Padarm. Oh, my gosh. This is These are Welsh names. So imagine all the all the vowels taken out and just a bunch of L's, G's, and Y's all Lynn put together. Lynn of Lambrus in Gwynland. Gwynland. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, that's, you, you made that sound good. Uh, I think that, I think you're pretty close. Rob Geel, 30, from Newborough on Ashley, was diving officer for the Rosnier SAC. said, a lot of times we dive at the sea of the North Wales coast, but sometimes we come inland waters for change in scenery. Two years ago, eight of our members, including myself, were diving in Lynn Padarn. When we came across a wagon lying in the bed about 20 meters down, we brought ourselves a 100-kilogram lift bag, which is basically a balloon that can be taken underwater, attached to the object, and then inflated to bring it gradually to the surface. The wagon was once used for transporting loads of slate from the nearby uh, Dinerwick Quarry uh, to uh, Dinerwick Seaport at Y Fenhall. We have examined it and found it to be quite a bit of it still intact. We decided it must be part of the history of the old slate railroad railway and handed it to the Lanes Breeze Lake Railway, and they told us that because of the wooden chassis, it must be one of the earliest used in the line, which would make at least 116 years old, as the wagons were all metal after 1900. It's great to think we covered a piece of the region's industrial history. Now, I'm kind of wondering if they're putting any effort into conserving that. I mean, we know, um, you know, from the you know the experience with with the Alvin and the Alvin Clark and um, different things come out of the water that uh, once you take it out. It's, it, it turns to splinters very quickly, so I hope they got some kind of conservation effort going on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at their Facebook page now to see if they they did anything. Yeah, I, I watched the YouTube video about it, and it's, they saw it bringing it up there, but... Uh, yeah. 
they, they, they do a lot of shots where they're posing around the wagon there. It, it looks a little bigger than a, than a radio flyer. You know, it's, uh, it's not, not a huge wagon. Um, and by the video, I think they actually bring it up in pieces, but it's all assembled when they show it, you know, they, they photograph it later on there. Um, oh, okay. One... So, so the, that shot with them all staying around it, that's one where they put the, the pieces kind of together. So you had somewhat of an idea what it was supposed to look like. Yeah, I think they they brought it up like with the axles, the wheels separate, and then they brought the frame up and yeah, but the, it looks like they, they didn't bring it up completely intact in the video. Um, but you know, they, they they brought it all up, and I mean, I'm sure probably what was a a wise decision for whatever reasons they had to work with to you know to bring it up. So, um. so nice. I mean, I'm always glad to see somebody recover it, but that is the the same question I have is you know what's the conservation plan for it, or are you just bringing it up as garbage because it's interesting how maybe 20 years difference and you wouldn't think anything about just throwing it in the trash can yeah well there's a lot more interest in history now and i'm uh, i'm not sure what the uh, interest history trend has been in this area but um it's good to know that they recognize it for what it was and i say they hope that the museum has a plan for it there um maybe put together an exhibit on it um you know i i'm thinking it came out of a quarry in the area so probably where that museum is, you know, that quarter would be a large part of the local history. So maybe they could add it as part of a local history of you know, exhibit they already have going on. I'm not sure. So I'm hoping they find a place for it in their exhibits. And then Queensland hopes to sink the HMAS Tobruk for divers. Queensland formally bid for a defense department to sink the decommissioned HMAS Tobruk. Off its coast is a scuba diving site. Areas in Bundaberg, Hervey Bay, and Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast are all considered suitable sites for sinking the 127-meter-long vessel. And looking at the photo of that, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? I'd love to see something like that. And And that's one you could sink at 200 feet, and it would still have a lot at recreational depth. Yeah, I mean, looking at sitting here, that picture, you know, the guy standing in front of it, you know, the thing's got to have 75 feet of vertical to it. I mean, this, this, this is a big boat. That big is, boat. That is a, that's a tall one. I'm not, did they say what kind of vessel it was? Decommissioned HMAS Tourbrook. Um, yeah, no, they don't go into a lot of, uh, a lot of detail. They say that the dive site would be a huge draw card for Queensland's billion dollar tourism industry, which I would have to agree. Not that mm-hmm. I'm going to go all the way just for that wreck, but if you were there, you would certainly want to stop by and take a peek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's a landing ship, they're saying. Uh, I guess it does kind of make sense. If you look at the front, it looks like there's a, that must be oh, a yeah. ramp that drops down. Yep, yep, uh, no doubt. You so see that. Experts. Well, so then it's large and cavernous inside. I mean, that's Ooh, what makes it like nice. a, a, a nice penetration. That'd well, be that'd nice be nice if they dropped that ramp, so you could, that would that would be nice to open it all up. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. what's your feeling on on these wrecks? You see, some some will will seal them up so that there's no way to get in anywhere, and some will rip them open to where it's really not even a penetration anymore. Well, if you want to attract divers, you need to have you know skills of all levels available there. So um, I think they should be opened up for penetration. You know, it, it's up to the diver number that you want to go inside it there. Right. So. And and over the years, as the thing sits down there, um, divers will find a way in anyway. So yeah, yeah they'll, I mean, they'll make their own holes. Go ahead and weld it up as long as you want. That's just more of a challenge there. Yeah. You 
It's amazing what they can do with a dive knife and a can opener. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking there's some guys over the East Side State thinking about a plasma cutter there, but move on. Or or C4. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. And then we have the rebirth, the artificial reef program. Uh, Man, trying to kill that audio. Oh, goodly. Yeah. Oh, I'm not getting all good on mine. No, it, the, my my audio doesn't feed back to you, but I was having all sorts of pleasant times. Of course, we'll edit this out, which I won't do. It's a minute, it's a hour twenty so far. Um, so let's see which fest. This one's at Point Pleasant Beach. The 65 foot former New York foot. Harbor crew boat was pur- purposely sunk as a reef. Let's see, where's this out of? Asbury Park Press. It's kind of these these local towns that New Jersey. Oh, so it's off the New Jersey coast. Okay, so the reef program was begun in 1984. It contributes to the state's 1.4 billion dollar recreational fishery, according to National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration 2014 figures. For years, recreational fishermen, a broad category used by fishery managers for anglers, spear fishers, and for hire charter and party boats, held small ceremonies like the one Tuesday for a reef sinking. That all stopped in 2011 at the height of the turf war between commercial and recreational fishermen. Commercial lobstermen and potters had strangled the reefs with trap lines obstructing anglers from use of the reef. On the Seagrit Reef, it was estimated that there were 23,000 feet of commercial trap lines on it. It got to the point where it was like a minefield. The commercial fishermen had broken no laws of the reef program. In fact, they argued that some reef locations are traditionally commercial fishing grounds. The conflict revolved around reef funding. The reefs were funded primarily through a sports fishing fund made up of private donations from sports fishing clubs and dive groups. The fund was a nonprofit created in 1988. $2.5 million had been donated to it. The Arthur E. Clark Foundation, which contributed over a half million dollars was by far the biggest donor. Rolling Waters further was the fact that the funding of the state's reef program, including the salaries of the staff who ran it, came from Federal Sports Fishermen Restoration Fund, the money from the fund collected from excise tax of the state sports fishing tackle. By not prohibiting commercial potters from using the reefs, the state violated the guidelines for gear use on the reefs as mandated by Sports Fishing Restoration Act. The gear was supposed to be limited to hook and line and spear, not commercial traps and pots where hooks and sinkers and anchors got snagged. In 2011, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service moved to withhold funding because of commercial fishing on the reef. The reef program went on hiatus. A handful of recreational groups who did not always see eye-to-eye fought to get the commercial potting gear off the reef. It evolved into political squabbling, but the result was an amicable agreement reached last fall and the program was reinstated. Commercial fishermen were given access to portions of two existing reefs in state waters. Department of Environmental Protection said the new square mile reef will be constructed in state waters in the area of uh, Barnegat Inlet for use by recreational anglers. Cranberry said the stage is set for the program to make an epic comeback. It's already beginning. In June, two vessels were sunk in the reef's southern end of the state, and on Tuesday, Har- Harbor Charlie became the first vessel to be sunk in the Axle Carlson Reef since the program started back up. There are about 10 vessels deployment set for this year. Isn't that unbelievable how many that they're able to sink? And well, I th- they must have a lot of excess boats down there. Well, <laughs> and, and, and the thing is that 
here in Michigan, we can't do that because the laws were, that's why they limited it one per, per reef or per preserve is that there were some elements within the state who didn't want to see what's going on here, which is just lots of smaller boats just being sunk. And some of them maintain that these are just trash boats. Uh, but I think they have a, well, a value as long as they're not polluting. Well, I think it's are fine. people diving? Are people diving them? You know, and it, um, I'm sure it creates some of a fish habitat down there. So. Well, it looks like they're primarily for recreational fishing, but the divers are involved. And I don't blame them because these are excellent. I'd love to go diving on it. Mm-hmm. And they got a backlog. Yeah, we, we really got to kick Michigan up in the gear. We got to get some, some reefs going. Well, we can get the funding to get them cleaned up. You know, there are some candidates out there. It's a matter of getting them, all the asbestos out of them and the lead paint, and there's always a lot of stuff involved. I, in I think them. we could get funding. I think that there was, we could sell that. I looked for years for vessels, and I couldn't find any. So maybe we, we need to talk off the air and see what boats you're seeing that I, I couldn't find. Uh, well, I think the big thing is just getting the word out about, you know, all the cool wrecks we already have, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's shocking, you know, when you come back into port, and people are like, oh, y'all fishing? No, we're diving. What's to dive out there? You know, it's amazing how many people just don't know how much history, how many wrecks, how much stuff there is beneath the surface to go to, to go put on your, your tanks and take a look at. Well, well um, something that I wanted to start was get a list of all the parks that are facing Lake Michigan, and then figure out what are the what wreck is closest to what park. And then put plaques up at the park so when people are going for that great western Michigan sunset, they can see that plaque that says, you know, if you look this direction two miles off the coast in 1897, here's what happened. And you can give a little bit of perspective and education so that people start thinking about it to realize that there are some of these resources out there because they're not visible. Even if you're a fisherman in a boat, you may not realize that that honey hole you're fishing over is a shipwreck. Darren, that's an excellent idea. What's stopping you? Yeah, <laughs> just my my schedule, but uh, it's, it's one of them. I've I've got hundreds of them. I'd follow up on that. You know, yeah. I mean, we get all the yeah. I'd follow yeah. up on that. Yeah, we could we could easily do it, and that's hoping the preserve would be a little bit more active. But we just haven't quite. There hasn't been a lot of interest in the preserve. You know, it's like you. It's like with any group, you get a few hardcore people who are really putting their effort into it, but you just don't have a larger membership base to, to contribute. Well, you know, a lot of people that are, you know, very familiar with the sites, though, and are using the preserves to, to get the numbers to dive the wrecks. I mean, mm-hmm. they, um, you know, on the the Michigan preserve system, you know, with the, the numbers they post, I've found them to be quite accurate. You know, there are a lot of different sources to get numbers for wrecks, yeah. and some are, some real goose chases I won't go into here, but, uh, yeah. you know, what I've seen in the preserve system, as long as you're, you know, familiar with your GPS and you can tell whether you're looking at, you know, minutes and seconds or decimals, um, they will get you there. Go ahead. And, and most, you know, uh, freshwater divers I know are pretty familiar with them. So, yeah. Yeah. And, if, and if you dive on a wreck or you find the number off, please let the particular preserve know and they can update the numbers. I'm, I'm hoping that some of your experiences weren't based on uh, – on some of the preserve sites that I've done. 
No, the pre- preserved numbers I found have been pretty good. You know, they're, I'm always looking looking to find other wrecks. You know, mm-hmm. there are other sources out there to find wrecks besides preserves. But um, you know, it's very frustrating to uh, you know go you know eight nine miles offshore and find that well, there's nothing there. You know, and w- w- with a, with a hummingbird, you can usually tell if there's something there or not. But then you also have issues, you know, with you know the sand comes and goes. Um, right. I know I went. I'm looking to looking to, to refine the uh, the wheeler. No one's dove the uh, FW wheeler in a long, long, long time. And uh, which one's the wheeler? The wheeler. It's just north of Michigan City. Um, oh it's, yeah, uh, it's a turtled uh, wooden freighter that um, you know, I, I talked to. I talked to people. Got confirmation where it was. Um, I I know where it is. Um, you know there are numbers out there on it. But the problem is, is that the uh, anyone who, who dove the wheeler will tell you that it's in between 30 and 40 feet of water. But you go to that spot today, and it's nine feet of water. Um, I was out there with uh, Kirk and Sarge last year. You know, we we're looking for them, and so much sand has come in that uh, it's buried. You know, and, uh, and and you get that with the shallower wrecks. Um, you know, city of Green Bay is completely buried now. It'll, it'll come back eventually, but it's totally buried now. Yeah. Um, the Burlington alongside the Holland Pier. Um, a lot of it was scrapped out, but a lot of it wasn't. You know, I mm-hmm. talked to fishermen out there. They will tell you exactly where where it is in 38 feet of water. But you go out to that 38 feet of water alongside the you know that's just north. What was it? Uh, oh, actually, it was yeah, just northwest of the pierhead, and it's now 14 feet of water there because all that sand has moved in, and you know stuff's there, but it's buried. So. Yeah, some and we have the same thing. You talk about uh, buried shipwrecks right there in St. Joe. Uh, there's probably seven or eight uh, shipwrecks that, at least in our lifetime, will never see the light of day. There's actually houses on top of them. Hmm. Uh, wow. Well, well, because you know, we're going to end the news here. So if you've been following along, we probably have about five more stories. But with interviews, it kind of cuts into the news. So we'll just pick up on it in two weeks. We won't have a podcast next week. I will be unavailable. I'll be cooking corn dogs. If you're in the southwest part of the state of Michigan at the Berrien County Youth Fair, stop by the corn dog booth, and I am sure I will have made ten thousand corn dogs uh, by the end of the week. Uh, so, but the, yeah, we we um, so to talk about some do- local uh, diving there, the St. Joe River in the early days before they built the pier went along the bluff. So instead of going where it kind of, uh, you know, about where the, the the statue is, you know, the the big stainless steel thing that sticks out, oh, yeah. it, it cut back before that and went along the bluff and went out more, you know, right through the uh, south side of Silver Beach. All right. So what they did is as they improved the port, and what would happen is – you know, as the you, you had your you didn't have dams and you had thaws and floods and you know you're, you're you've kind of got a delta there of sand and as sand drifts and moves, I mean, Saugatuck had Singapore. I mean, there's a town that's buried in the sand dunes because of the sand moving around, and it's not until people got motivated and did civil engineering that they started uh, addressing this. And part of it was building the pier and putting in the old lighthouse, uh, but the. There was a. There were times where you couldn't even get into the river. There's so many shipwrecks, ships that had tried to make it in during a storm and just beached themselves. 
Well, if you're talking about their saga talk, you know, they completely, completely redug that river mouth there. Uh, oh, yeah. Corps of Engineers came in in 1901 and, uh, you know, redug it about a mile to the north of where it is just because there were a lot, a lot of hairpin turns in the river. And it was, it was impossible to keep it clean. They were always getting full of sand. So yeah. I know that Holland's current um, river mouth there is not the original. I think that's like a quarter mile to the north of where the, the original one was. Um, no, it's been pretty common for the you know the government to come in the engineers come in and you know make it more navigable um, but yeah it, it, it has changed the topography yeah and uh, the University of Michigan does have an online library where you can get plat maps for all these ports uh, which I've, I have found useful uh, a lot of the rivers it's on our our forefathers who were building up these cities was not shy about dredging and making river mouths and openings and canals. So there in Niles, there was quite a few canals that, uh, and, and you can get clues if you look at some of the street names. You'll see roads in middle of town that will be, say, things like shore or water or, or sometimes even canal, and that's what it was. That's how they move freight into different manufacturing uh, okay. type of locations. Okay, so now back to these plat maps. You say they're, they're, they're viewable online? Oh, yeah, you can go online, and I'll, I'll have to uh, I'll look them up. I've, I, at one point, I wanted to download them all, but it just got to be insane. Uh, so I just kind of grabbed what I wanted. But, yeah, you can, you can get them. Uh, there was, um, I think it was, it's, a, it's a, one of the current Atlas companies today existed way back then. And they would make them, and you'd have them. In fact, I've, I actually have one personally that my grandfather was given when he owned a marina there in Saugatuck uh, that I, I need to scan and I'm going to donate to museum. But that one was from the mid-1800s. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, so there's uh, there's all sorts of them. The University of Michigan has put them all online, and uh, you can zoom in. It's amazing the, the level of detail they scanned. I don't know if they rescanned them in, but the last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, and it's nice to go and take the same area between because they, they didn't do them every year they would update them like every seven ten eleven years and to see the changes that had happened and how things had moved moved around uh, but yeah they're, they're certainly available uh, yeah I, I know they're available at the uh, libraries I didn't realize they were available oh yeah they're, they're on they're online uh, the the thing I've have noticed and I don't know if they've improved it is that at work where we've got a massive internet connection um, you can sometimes be challenged to have enough bandwidth to download the image. So I think what happens is that whatever server they've got and however it's going, I don't know if it's shared with a library or students or whatever, but there are times where I would click on an image and come back in two hours and it was moving like old dial-up rates. Wow. So that's something okay. to also to account for. Uh, and they did have a nice, like, uh, bookmarking where you could bookmark what you wanted and then come back and bundle them up and zip them and download them. So they had, they, there's a lot of thought put into it. You know, universities usually do a pretty good job of, of thinking through things like that. But, uh, yeah, I, also I was running out of disk space. So, um, now I just need to, you know, now, you know, a few years ago, a terabyte was a huge amount. And now you can get, you know, 100 terabyte drives. So, uh, so you, you, we talked a little bit when, uh, Billy C was on about the Thomas Hume, uh, but that overall that was a nice dive. Um, the dive portion was excellent. Um, you know, afterward that got kind of complicated um, stuff. Which sorry, I'm just not going to get into here. But um, you know, just 
Watch your P's and Q's out there, folks. <laughs> you know, um, I won't get into it beyond that. But but the, the, the dive portion was phenomenal. You know, um, visibility, good company. Um, the wreck is everything you've read about. Okay, if you can get out there, get out there. We're already making plans to go out there again. So yeah, I, I certainly want to. I need to get you know more dives going because that one is deeper. Uh, I'm I'm tomorrow. I'm picking up some some gear and getting ready for this weekend. Uh, we're going to be doing the Rockaway, from what I understand. Uh-huh. Bob's got his, Bob had some work done on his boat because uh, he had, uh, sounded like an ignition coil uh, had gone bad in one of the cylinders. So, uh-huh. Yeah, that, you know, the Rockaway, um, it's, it's pretty broken up, but, you know, the visibility there tends to be pretty decent and you've got a lot of fish in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, I love diving the Rockaway. You know, yeah, uh, I, I, I like to. I, you know, I, the Rockaway is a one dive a season to me. Uh, the same, I think of the Rockaway almost the same way I do the Havana. The Havana, I think, is a little bit more personable. I don't know why. Maybe it's because one of my first big uh, Lake Michigan shipwrecks. But the the Rockaway is a, a, a good, at least, if not every season, every other season, it's it's worthy of going to. Yeah, um, I think that the, the, the Havana has you know more to see than the Rockaway. Of course, you know, the, the Rockaway... The uh, Maritime Museum in South Haven was involved in a major archaeological study out there, and they they brought in most anything that could be removed. They they they, they brought in, so there's there's nothing as far as artifacts out there. But uh, you know, you you have of course the whole ship. You know, the, the very impressive centerboard trunk. Um, you know, the chines are laying down. I think there's some knees out there. Um, you can if you follow. There's a line that goes. I want to say to the northwest that takes you out to the windlass. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a good looking windlass, you know. Um, there's I got some pictures on my Facebook there. It's a it's a good looking windlass. Um, you know, like I said, the, the visibility there is usually pretty decent. Um, I think it's sixty feet to the sand. Um, you know, we dove it. I want to say about a month ago, and we had about thirty foot visibility. Uh, very strong thermocline, but it was uh, yeah. I'm, I made the mistake of wetsuiting it. I should took a dry took a dry suit that day. I mean, you'll probably be okay with a wetsuit this time you know, now, but it was. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm still going to do a dry suit just because I don't want to muck around with all the buoyancy to readjust to my wetsuit again. <laughs> I, I have a hard time just going between spring and and summer buoyancy, let alone going a third. I think if I had been keeping up on it, then I might enjoy the break in mm-hmm. a wetsuit. I'm sure I'm going to regret it <laughs> because I I I just do not like being overly hot on a boat getting in the water, but yeah, I, I've kind of gone to having two kits, you know, I've got one set up for, if I'm doing like river lakes, things where I don't need the, you know, the additional warmth of a dry suit, um, which, you know, when I'm going wet, you know, use a smaller tank, you know, a little more basic hose, hose routing and things. Um, or, but you know, yeah, going out to the Hume, doing anything, um, approaching tech, you know, anything that's going beyond a hundred feet, in my opinion, I, I do use my more complicated rig. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rockaway's a good dive. Definitely a good dive. So I'm, I'm looking forward to to getting out. Uh, Max in the chat room. He's got back from his thirsty Thursday dive. So if you're in a chat room, you get the benefit of chatting with Mac. Also, Dave Toneman has rolled on in, and Kevin, I pasted you links that Mac put into the chat room, which is to the uh, plat maps in the state of Michigan. So you can get those all online. So that will save okay. you one trip to the library. Great, great. Yeah, I'm taking a look at that. Um, yeah, I'm with my current setup i'm not there right now but uh mm-hmm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to get over there <laughs> so yeah. yeah 
Yeah, but it, it, I, I just found it nice just to, I, for one thing, I just love that. That's, you know, what I would do on a, a stormy afternoon would just be plug around in the old maps. There's a lot of things you can do, and they're all hand-drawn. I mean, you can see the, you know, somebody many generations back took time to draw all that detail. Mm-hmm. Well, I still like going down the library, though. Actually, you know, you know seeing the originals and, um, you know, I, and yeah, I'm going to take this opportunity to, to, to plug the libraries because mm-hmm. people just you know don't realize how well they can utilize them. But you know, if you're doing any any kind of research, whether it's you know shipwrecks, genealogy, um, anything which you know <laughs> you want to actually see the hard copies of, you know, because yeah, the internet is great for looking up things, but you just kind of get a sampling. If you want to get the meat and potatoes, you just go to the library, yeah. and uh, you know the librarians give them a call. And they will have so much material waiting for you; it'll it'll shock you. Yep. And they're awesome at at organizing it and you know showing you where it came from. Um, use your libraries; they're great. Well, I think we're going to have to do it. Uh, get to the end of it. We have surpassed ninety minutes of underwater podcasting. Not that we're underwater right now, but we will soon be. I'd like to thank everybody again in the chat room and then uh, Billy C. and Scuba Nation for coming on the program. It was nice talking to them. So this wraps up our third of three-part series talking about shipwreck diving. If you have any ideas of stuff you'd like us to talk about, go ahead and drop us a line at the show at Scuba Obsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed at Scuba Obsessed on Twitter and the website www.scubaobsessed.com. On that website, we'll have links to our Patreon page. You also have links to our fan map where you can put a pin in the fan map. Let us know where you're listening from. We would also like to thank our Patreon supporters. This week, we have two at the Dive Nitrox level, Scott Hulbert and Vanessa Homiak. Thank you very much for supporting us through our Patreon account. Do you have anything you want to plug, Kevin? I think I've already plugged the library. That's that's, that's the main people I'd like to give us some credit for. Um, I think we're good, but thanks for the offer. Certainly. So, time for that bad scuba joke? Bring it on. The scuba diver goes to a council to apply for a job in the office. The interviewer asks him, are you allergic to anything? He replies, yes, caffeine. Have you worked for public service before? Yes, in the Army, he says. I was in Iraq for two tours. The interviewer says, that will give you an extra five points towards employment. Then he asks, are you disabled anyway? The guy says, yes. A mine exploded when I was there, and I lost both my testicles. The interviewer grimaces says, okay, you've got enough points for me to take you on right away. Our normal hours are from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., but you can start tomorrow at 10 a.m. and carry on starting at 10 a.m. every day. The diver is puzzled and asks, if the work starts at 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., why don't you need me there until 10 a.m.? I'm not looking for any special treatment. Well, he says, what you have to understand is that this is a council job. For the first two hours, we just stand around drinking coffee and scratching ourselves. There's no point for you coming in for that. Oh, send the mail, too. (laughs) Yes. The show at Scuba Obsessed. (laughs) Send your complaints, too. Yeah, it uh, seems appropriate in this uh, political season. (laughs) All right, all right. So on behalf of everybody at Scuba Obsessed, go out there and get wet. Thanks for tuning in.
Good show, Darren. Thank right you. Up recording to the joke. has been completed. Good show. Right up to the joke. Great show. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. <laughs> That's what you got to do. You know, it's kind of like you know, if if you if if you don't shed a tear, you don't realize how good that laughter was. <laughs>